Chapter Two of the Weird Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Weird Picture by John R. Carling. Chapter Two: The Veiled Lady. Completely mystified, I stood motionless for a few moments. I was certain that my brother had entered the house. Perhaps, despite the old man's assertion as to the door having been closed and locked, he had really left it ajar, and George, perceiving this, had, in a fit of desperation, seized the occasion to enter and hide, resolving to remain there till I had taken my departure. He might even now be stealing a look from one of the windows to see whether the coast were clear. I looked at the time and found that I had an hour before the departure of the London train. I determined to watch the house for a short time, and then, if my brother did not appear, to betake myself to the station. The portico of the adjoining house was the spot I selected for my vigil, a place which, while concealing my own presence, gave me a full view of the strange dwelling. I like that old man's face, I muttered, as I shook off the snow from my cloak, preparatory to folding it closer around me. It's a noble one and a truthful one, or I am no judge of faces. I believe he knows nothing of George's entering. But for all that, I'm certain George is within. Much good I do by stopping here. George can easily leave by the rear. Perhaps he is left already. No matter... If he's going to London, he must travel by the same train as I shall, and therefore I am sure to see him on the platform. If he is not going to London, well, so much the better for my hopes. I wonder who the old man is, and why he's all alone. Perhaps he's butler to a family who are spending their Christmas from home. The cold was intense. The wind blew keenly. The drops of perspiration caused by my violent run seemed slowly turning into icicles on my chilled skin. I took a deep draught of the brandy and water in my flask. Taking a cigar from my case, I contrived to light it after some difficulty, and puffed away vigorously. Then I referred to my watch. Only ten minutes elapsed? I thought it was a half an hour. Time lags. Who was it that said time flies? If the ass were here tonight in my place, I rather fancy he would revoke his saying. Am I really awake, I wonder? Can this be Daphne's wedding morn, and I am here, at 3.30 a.m., in the snow at Dover, keeping watch on an absconding bridegroom? It must be a dream. I shall wake up presently at old Heidelberg, and hear the chapel bell tinkling for matins. Twenty minutes elapsed. Nothing happening so far. I muttered, I'm a fool to stop here. This is growing ridiculous. I shall freeze if I remain much longer. I believe I am freezing, falling off into one of those sweet Russian slumbers that one reads of in books. Or is it the brandy? Ah, what's that? Something happening in the strange house, that's certain. A light had appeared at an upper window, and was shining faintly out into the night. My curiosity was raised to a high pitch, and I stole from my hiding place to get a nearer view. 
The old man had not been burning a light previously to my arrival, and if he had gone to bed, what did he want with one now? Excitement drove all the cold from my body, and a tingling warmth succeeded, as with a quickly beating heart I waited for some development of this apparent mystery. And no words of mine can describe my feeling of surprise as I saw the shadow of a woman glide across the blind of the lighted window. The dark silhouette stood forth for a moment distinct on the illuminated white, and then vanished. Now there was nothing surprising in the shadow of a woman crossing a blind in the early hours of the morning. But when you have been assured a few minutes previously by the tenant of the house that there is no one within the building but himself, it does become a matter of surprise. And in the present case everything tended to invest the event with a mysterious air. The woman, to judge by the outline of her shadow, was habited as if for a journey, and this, added to the fact that the light was now extinguished, induced me to extend the duration of my watch. No one came out, however, and as the London train would be departing in fifteen minutes, I deliberated as to the wisdom of staying longer. If I missed the train, I should not be in time for the wedding, using the word wedding in a provisional sense. For, from the strange proceedings of the last hour, doubts began to seize me as to whether it would ever come off. I was loath to depart, but the desire of witnessing the scene that would take place at my uncle's house in the event of George's non-appearance decided my course of action. I determined to wait no longer, and having applied both eye and ear to the keyhole of the strange house without learning anything thereby, I set off for the station at a running pace. Having completely lost my bearings, and being a stranger to Dover, I knew not which way to turn, and would have fared ill but for the guidance of a friendly constable. I arrived two minutes before the departure of the train. On receiving my luggage from the porter, I said, "'Have you not seen the gentleman?' "'No, sir, he is not in this train. Not been here since you left.' Having satisfied my curiosity by walking along the platform and scrutinizing the occupants of every carriage, I returned and said, Find me a first-class compartment all to myself. One here, sir, with the brightest lamp in the whole train. If mine were the brightest, I pity those who were cursed with the dullest. Put it in specially for you, sir. The lies some people will tell for a few paltry pence. Taking a corner seat and calling for a foot-warmer, I leaned out of the window, keeping a sharp lookout in case George should turn up on the platform at the last moment. I suppose my bro— The gentleman cannot now get to London before me. Not unless he has gone by the other line. What other line? The L.C. and D. What's that? The L.C. and D., repeated the porter apparently astounded that anyone should be ignorant of the meaning of those initials. Why, the London-Chatham-Andover Railway. Their last train left twenty minutes ago. Here was a pretty piece of news. I could have written a long article on the numerous paved via that radiated from ancient Rome, but I knew next to nothing of the lines of railway that emanate from modern London, and the idea that there might be an iron road to the great city other than the one I was traveling by had never occurred to me. 
I have had my long watch for nothing, I muttered savagely. While I was shivering in the cold, George, for all that I know to the contrary, may have left the house by a back door, and may now be bowling on his way to London. Well, anyhow, I am close on his heels. I shall arrive before the wedding, and you don't marry Daphne, George, until you have given an explanation of your strange conduct. Something wrong has been going on, else why should you avoid me? And, with all the sophistry, employed by mortals when their self-interest is concerned, I tried to convince myself that in requiring an explanation from George, I was actuated by a consideration for Daphne's welfare, and by no other motive. The guard's whistle had sounded, and the locomotive in front had given a warning shriek, when the figure of a lady appearing within an archway just opposite the compartment I was in darted hurriedly across the platform. "'Ticket, if you please, miss. Thank you. Charing Cross, first class. Jump in, please. Not a moment to lose.' The carriage door was flung hastily open, and the lady, partly by her own exertions and partly aided by a gallant porter, entered, and seated herself at the other end of the compartment on the side opposite to me. Now, although by no means so handsome a person as I could wish myself to be, I am nevertheless not quite so ugly as to inspire aversion in the mind of any dame, be she old or young, and yet the lady had no sooner set eyes upon me than she stared at me with terror, as if mine were the most repulsive countenance that had ever disgraced the chamber of horrors, conduct which somewhat nettled me, for not being an ungallant youth, I was hoping for a charming tete-a-tete -tete all the way to London. She glanced at the door as if desirous of quitting the compartment for another, but if such were her purpose it was baffled. The train was now fairly on the move, and we were steaming out of the station into the cold snow-dotted air of night. Willing or unwilling, the lady must submit to be my companion for the next two hours. Her obvious glances of distrust and alarm put me in a false position, and I at once determined to open a conversation for the purpose of showing what a good youth I was, and how little to be dreaded. But ere proceeding to this course I took, while pretending to read the newspaper, a steady view of my fair companion. She was slender, graceful, ladylike, and tall as a woman should be. With Byron, I hate a dumpy woman. Her features seemed regular and handsome, but I could discern a little of them through the thick veil she was wearing, save a pair of splendid dark eyes, the color being a trifling deviation from my ideal of beauty, since Daphne's eyes were of a dark blue. A close-fitting bonnet covered her dark hair, and a fur boa was wrapped around her throat. A pair of little red leather shoes peeped out from beneath the skirts of a long fur-lined cloak. A muff contained her gloved hands. A handsome brunette was my critique. I shall be most happy to introduce myself. How shall I begin, and what shall I talk about? Ha! Tell her I'm going to a wedding. Nothing unlocks a woman's tongue so easily as a wedding, barring, perhaps, a sensational divorce. Now, while I was casting about in my mind how to begin the conversation, my attention was suddenly attracted to something that she had thrust beneath the seat immediately on entering the compartment. Down from my hands dropped the newspaper at the sight I saw. 
The sight was nothing more than a valise partly hidden from view by her dress. But the portion that did display itself was marked by the letters G.W., thus corresponding exactly with the initials on the bag that my brother had carried. Was the bag, now peering out at me from beneath the carriage seat, the identical one that had disappeared with George into the mysterious house? My staring eyes were transferred from the lady's face to the valise, and from the valise to the lady's face, in swift alternation. Then I suddenly recalled the silhouette on the blind, and as I studied the lady's headdress and figure, I thought if she were to pass between a light and the blind, the contour of her shadow would not be very dissimilar from the one that I had seen. She could have issued from the strange house as soon as I had left it, and would that account for her haste and breathlessness state on entering the train? Her obvious mistrust of me, then, arose from a cause totally different from that of womanly timidity at being exposed alone to the company of a stranger. Yet, since we had never met each other before, how did she know I was a person to be avoided? Who are you? I muttered to myself, and what relations do you hold with my brother? For some dealing you have with him, else why that bag? Are you his first Daphne, I wonder? "'traveling to London to tell the second Daphne "'that you are an unsurmountable obstacle "'to a certain wedding that is to come off this morning. "'A sort of sister-in-law to me, "'whose relationship has not been sanctioned by the church? "'Has George been compromising himself? "'Let me try to find out. "'I had a high idea of my own ability to draw people out. "'The sequel will show what a dexterous cross-examiner "'the law has lost in me.' "'Do you object to smoking, madam?' I asked, by way of beginning a conversation. In lieu of a verbal reply, the lady responded by a quick, horizontal motion of her head, which sign presumably implied that she did not object. Ours was not a smoking carriage. Perhaps it was this fact that suggested the idea of a cigar. "'Youth is defiant, and thou shalt not is often the parent of I will.' So with a sovereign contempt for the company's bylaws, I proceeded to light a cigar, remarking as I did so, it is a rough night for traveling. Assent was given to this proposition by a vertical inclination of her head. No words as yet had passed her lips. This was certainly not very encouraging, but then perhaps I ought not to have spoken until after I had been addressed by her. It occurred to me that while courting the muses at Heidelberg, I had perhaps neglected the graces, and had lost all notions of etiquette, and unlike the damsel in the opera of Rudigora, I did not carry an etiquette book about with me to consult in cases of doubt, or I might have referred to it, in the present instance, under the head of whether it be allowable for a gentleman traveling in company with an unknown lady to try to draw her into conversation. Whether it be allowable or not, it is certainly the duty of every one to be considerate. So I pushed the foot warmer to the feet of my fair companion, remarking, Your need is greater than mine. I thought this famous quotation from Elizabethan history would be sure to elicit some words. But no. Her thanks took the shape of a graceful inclination of her head, and at the same time the dark eyes sparkled through the veil, seeming to say, You want to make me speak, but you shall not succeed. She had evidently recovered from her terror. Perseverance is an essential feature in my character. 
I determined to continue my crusade against her silence. I took from my portmanteau some English illustrated magazines that I had brought with me from Heidelberg to beguile the tedious hours of traveling, and extending them to the stranger said, May I offer you these? Now this proved a bad stroke of policy on my part, for the papers were accepted with a grave bow, and the lady at once immersed herself in their contents, and took no further notice of me. "'Well, if this doesn't beat all,' I muttered. "'You're a cool one. Rude, too, for surely an act of courtesy is deserving of a few words of thanks.' It then occurred to me that perhaps she was unaware I was suspicious of her, and had determined to baffle me by presenting a firm shield of silence to my conversational shafts, even when those shafts consisted of casual and trifling remarks. In ordinary circumstances I should not, after so many rebuffs, continue to press my attentions, but I regarded the singular event of the night as a justification for my persistency. I therefore seized the occasion when she chanced to look up from her reading to make another trial to elicit a word. Are you traveling far, madam? The magazine was laid aside, and producing a card case. She seemed to be making a selection from its contents. Presently she handed a card to me. It was inscribed with the following words, written evidently with a view to emergencies such as she was now in. Pardon me if I have seemed rude. Thank you for your kind attentions, but being dumb from birth, I am unable to carry on a conversation. Dora Vane. Dumb from birth? This, then, was the key to her extraordinary silence. But immediately the thought succeeded. Perhaps she's only fooling me. The words on the card might describe the actual state of the case, or they might be but the resources of a woman determined not to yield an inch to my curiosity an adroit device to ward off all further questions. You evidently heard my last remark, I thought, even above the roar and rattle of this train, and yet I was always given to understand that people who are dumb from birth are likewise deaf. You must be an exception. If you are dumb, as this card states, you must know the dumb alphabet. I'll try an experiment and put you through a few paces. I was quite familiar with the finger alphabet, having been taught it by my school friend Tracy, who used to hold many a silent conversation with me when lessons grew tedious. So after attracting the lady's attention again, I held up my fingers and proceeded to frame a sentence expressive of my sympathy for her affliction. But she stared at me with absolutely no appreciation of my meaning and the only conclusion I could draw from my experiment was that my companion was no more dumb than myself, but that for reasons of her own she did not want to have any conversation with me, and had hit upon this device for rendering any impossible. Tracy's system of dumb language doesn't seem to work upon the southeastern line, I muttered, ruefully relinquishing my efforts. Perhaps Tracy's was one of my own invention. Not likely, though, he hadn't the brains to invent anything. Thus do we libel the absent. Manifestly, it was out of the question to gain any knowledge of the lady by compelling her to lift her veil and to reveal the part played by her in the mysterious business, though I was more than once tempted to commit this rash act. Such a proceeding, besides being very ungallant, 
might have resulted in my transference from the train to a police cell. It was equally out of the question to seize on the valise and examine its contents. To press her with further questions would be as little to the purpose, for if, accepting her plea of dumbness, I committed them to paper, she would doubtless refuse to answer. All I could do was sit in silence, resolving in my own mind not to lose sight of her on reaching London, but to follow her and find out if possible the place of her abode. So while I whiled away the rest of the journey in reading, or trying to read, some Christmas annuals, Dora Vane, to give the lady the name she had claimed, having glanced through the magazines, was now apparently asleep in her corner of the compartment. It was only a feigned sleep, however, for whenever I moved she would give a start, plainly showing that she was suspicious of me. The train was delayed considerably by the adverse weather, but it was not till past seven o'clock that we entered Charing Cross Station. I opened the carriage door, and emerging first, assisted the veiled lady to alight. Two points were noticeable in her behavior while stepping from the train, the care with which she guarded the bag, and the care she took to avert her face from me. As there was not a soul on the platform to welcome her, I was on the point of proffering my services to escort her to her destination, but with a friendly nod to me she flitted off without a moment's delay to the end of the station, and then hailing a cab was driven off. And it seemed to me that, instead of handing the driver a card with an address on it, as a dumb lady might naturally be supposed to do, she had conveyed her orders to him by word of mouth. But I was too far off to be certain of this. However, the moment the vehicle had disappeared beneath the archway, I flung my portmanteau and person into a hansom, calling out to the driver, "'Follow the cab that has just left. Don't lose sight of it for a moment. Don't get in front, but keep behind it. I want to see where the lady gets out. You understand?' The man nodded with a grin and a mystical remark about being up to snuff. Then he touched his horse's flank lightly with the whip and we bowled out of the station in gallant style, following in the wake of the cab. London lay beneath the murky gaslights wrapped in a winding sheet of snow, not sufficiently deep, however, to stop vehicular traffic, though it retarded it to a considerable extent. The snow was an advantage in one respect. It deadened the sound of the wheels of my hansom, and the wintry flakes still falling served as a sort of veil to conceal the fact that the cab was being followed. The destination of the veiled lady appeared to be some place in North London, for the vehicle she was in proceeded along St. Martin's Lane, and turned up Long Acre into Drury Lane. Thensip's progress was across Oxford Street, and up Southampton Row, till it finally turned into the Euston Road. "'I have it!' I cried." She's going to Euston Station. All hope of tracing the mysterious lady to her final destination must now be abandoned. If she were going by train to some distant part of the country, it was out of the question to follow her. I must be at the wedding. But I was wrong in my hasty surmise. The cab did not proceed to the station, but turned to the left along Euston Road, stopping at last in front of an obscure public house and the cabman, flinging down the reins, descended from the box and entered the building. 
She surely isn't going to get out there, I thought. Go slowly, I said to my driver, peeping through the lid in the roof, asked whether he should proceed. We drove past the cab, and one glance sufficed to show that the vehicle was empty. My surprise found vent in language, which was the most charitably disposed of my friends could not have construed into a doxology. "'You followed the wrong cab,' I cried savagely to my driver. "'Not I, Governor. That air is the vehicle you told me to follow. Number 2071. It's my pals, Bill Whippum's cab.' That's him as is in the pub now. He's a rare for the booze. In a moment I was inside the public house. The rare for the booze was ringing a golden coin on the counter of the bar, as if to test its genuineness. A good un, he cried delightedly. Blow me tight if I didn't think it was a duffer for the minute. She's something like a fair she is. A glass of the usual, Jim, with a little lemon and... "'Where's your fare, cabby?' I demanded brusquely. "'What's that got to do with you, Governor?' was the immediate retort. "'A good deal, as you'll see.' I returned to pulling out a notebook and feigning to write therein. "'Your number, I see, is 2071. I shall want you at Bow Street tomorrow. Perhaps you are not aware that I am a detective, and that the lady you have aided to escape was to have been arrested this morning.' The man assumed a more respectful demeanor. "'Ax your pardon, Governor, but how was I to know that the lady was wanted, and that a tech was arter her?' "'The lady she says to me, she says—' "'What?' I interrupted. "'She spoke to you, then? She wasn't dumb?' "'Dumb? No more than you are, Governor. She says to me, "'Coachman, there's a gentleman follerin' me.' "'That's not a verbatim report, I suppose,' I said with a smile." "'What's that?' "'Those were not her exact words, I mean.' "'They was her exact words, Governor,' replied the cabman, with a solemnity befitting the witness-box. "'So help me.' "'There's a gentleman a follower on me,' she says, "'an admirer of mine pestering me with his attentions, "'and I want to get rid of him. "'Will you help me?' "'If I can, miss,' I says. "'Well, then,' she says, "'Drive fast, and the moment you have turned the corner of Longacre, "'drop sharp, and I shall get out there, "'and then you drive at once to Euston. "'He'll follow you, thinking I'm still in the cab. "'Will you do this, and I'll give you a sovereign?' "'Of course,' says I. "'Yes.' "'She gave me the quid, and directly I turned the corner at Longacre, "'and she was out like a shot, almost before I had time to draw up. "'She darted down a side street like winking.' and I drove on according to orders. I could not refrain from smiling at my own discomfiture. She had guessed that I would follow her, and in the long interval occupied by our railway journey, she had marked out her plan of action, and devised a pretty little stratagem into which I had readily fallen. Why should she act thus? Could this lady really be George in disguise? This idea was inspired by the belief that she had come from the same house in which he had taken refuge. What sort of voice had she? I asked. Was it at all masculine? Oh, yes. Just what? Masculine. Do you know what masculine means? Frightened like, I specs, you mean. You're a f. Was it at all like a man's voice? Cabby seemed to think this was a question that required a good deal of consideration before answering. Well, it might have been a man's voice, 
he replied, speaking slowly. Similarly, it might not. It was a trifle hoarse for a woman, but I put that down to fright. You wouldn't swear in court of law that it was a man's voice? No, I wouldn't, Governor. I'm pretty certain it was a woman. No more was to be learned from the cabman, so thanking him for his information, I quitted the tavern. As I entered the hansom, the driver exclaimed with a grin, "'Given you the slip, sir? Reckon she's a cough drop and no blooming kid.' I turned a withering frown on this vulgar familiarity. "'Drive to Belgrave Square,' I exclaimed loftily, "'and look sharp.' I flung myself back in the cab in a fever heat. "'The affair is growing exciting,' I muttered. "'Was it a man or a woman?' "'If a woman, who?' If a man, was it George? If not, who? Did George travel by the other line, I wonder? And will he come this morning to claim his bride, or will he not? Will the veiled lady turn up in my uncle's drawing-room, or at the altar-rails, and create some melodramatic scene? Patience, patience, we shall see. Daphne, you may yet be mine. End of chapter 2